0: Amen. Anyone here still glad you're saved? <laughs> Man, Jesus is amazing. Yes, he is. All the time. And uh, what a great time of worship! I'm so glad He saved me, and that He is a constant. Help to me, always. To Him be glory and honor this morning. Amen. Um, I'm going to be sharing from Isaiah 53, if you want to turn to Isaiah 53 and share some thoughts. I'm preaching on the cross, a particular view of the cross today and a different view uh, next Sunday and, um, of course, the Sunday after that is Easter Sunday. So we're going to have a great time that day as well. But today I'm, I want us to look at the cross from God's view. How did God see the cross? <clears throat> so, well, is it possible for us to know how God looked at it? I so said, I believe it is. To a degree. We're not going to completely see his perspective, are we? He's perfect in all of his ways. But from the first animals that were killed, skinned, and their hides prepared as a covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness and guilt, that part of redemptive history always pointed toward a solution, an answer to sin's power, to, as uh, Paul referred to in Romans the dominion, the power of death. The writer of Hebrews says that the fear of death, that people have been held captive by the fear of death, from the time of Adam and Eve's redemption and God's providing a covering for them, it pointed forward to a time where salvation would be completely provided. You see, wrong necessitates payment. It it necessitates a consequence. So, man had to bring sacrifices. This is the whole problem with Cain and Abel. They knew from their parents how their covering took place. And even though there wasn't a system of worship, there wasn't a sanctuary, there wasn't a church building, there wasn't a temple, they would do this occasionally just to show that they trusted God's forgiveness by presenting sacrifices. And we know that Cain provided garden vegetables, and Abel provided a blood sacrifice because that was the norm. That was how they expressed their dependence on God's forgiveness. And of course, the whole tragic story of how Cain handled his depression about that. But blood sacrifices from the first family was instituted to show that sin necessitated life. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness or redemption from sin. And so it was never paid for. It was never fully paid for as animals were presented. And then Moses got the uh, design from God and and the instructions to construct this, um, this tabernacle, this portable sanctuary, and a system of worship that was supposed to be implemented in that Sanctuary, the tabernacle of the Lord, where the Lord's dwelling was at. Karen made reference to that in Sunday school about that was God's presence, the Shekinah glory. God lived in the tabernacle. So they presented these animals on a continual basis, all kinds of offerings, all kinds of coverings. There wasn't a day that went by that there were not animals killed at the tabernacle and later the temple as people brought guilt, guilt offerings, peace offerings. All these offerings, not just on the festivals, but every day people were bringing offerings to the Lord to deal with the problems in their lives. And by the time the tabernacle was up and running and functioning, Passover was already part of their celebration because Passover provided their exit out of Egypt. Passover was their deliverance from a land of slavery. And it's the Passover meal that Jesus set his last setting with the the disciples, and he expressed that that picture of the Passover was him. So how can we understand the mind of God in, in things like this? Well, I don't think we can wrap our minds around the mind of God. The Holy Spirit instructs us about the mind of God, but God is completely holy. Just like the song up here, we had words that he is holy, but he's also just. He's also loved, but he's also just. So how does a completely, infinitely, holy, righteous, just God have the goodness that provides salvation for us? As we consider this, we're going to be brought inevitably to Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified. And this is especially an image that we don't like to have in our minds. And, and, and The Passion of the Christ was one of those movies that at some points in it, the first time I saw it, I put my hand over my face. I, I just came to point, I, I couldn't see it anymore. Anybody else like that. And the picture of, of Christ crucified is not an image. Well, just think about an animal, a little lamb. Every Passover meal, the family had to kill that small lamb and prepare it for a meal. That's not an image we like to see. In our minds. 700 years prior to Jesus dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, God gave the prophet Isaiah his view of the cross. And it's found in Isaiah 53. You know, I, I made reference to the passion of the Christ. At the start of that movie, there's a passage of scripture from Isaiah 53 that starts that movie. I'm grateful for the face based movies that are coming out. You know, War Room, a great movie. If you still haven't seen it, you're just, you need to rent it, buy it, do something. Because it, it empowers and moves us to prayer. Does, is there anybody in this room that thinks we need to pray more? And we need to pray differently. We need to pray with unction and, and faith and the determination to see God do something. And then you had Risen, that just came out, and then Young Messiah. Here we have these faith-based movies, but it was the Passion of the Christ that took the nation and the world by storm, set all kind of records. It's also in Isaiah fifty-three that an arrest area outside of Jerusalem on the way to Ethiopia, there was a man pulled over in his chariot, an official, a high-ranking official of Ethiopia. And he was reading from this scroll in Isaiah. He was reading what we were about to read in Isaiah 53. And as Philip drew near to his chariot, he asked Philip this. He said, is the, uh, is the writer writing about himself? Who is he writing about? And Philip stepped up into the chariot and he explained that the, the passage he was reading, that we're about to read, was all about Jesus And shared Jesus with him. He came to faith in Christ. They stepped out of the chair. Went over into a roadside pond. And he baptized him. And he got in his chair and went on. This is how important Isaiah 53 is. Because Jesus is all through the Old Testament. You know, you might have heard of Adrian Rogers. You know, a little known pastor in Memphis. Adrian Rogers says that Jesus is all through the Old Testament. You can see him all through the Old Testament, if you know how to find him. So we're about to find him in Isaiah 53. Now, I'm going to read this from the King James Version, and somebody ought to say hallelujah and praise the Lord. It is the inspired version of the Bible. No, um, Carl Strader gave me a great love for this chapter. And he had it memorized, and I don't know how many times during the course of whatever he was preaching on, sometimes he would start quoting verses out of this. And I'd realize after he got three or four verses into it, it says he's, he's quoting the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, and he would quote the whole chapter. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord Been revealed. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. If you want to put something out in the column next to that passage, you ought to put the cross, because that is all about the cross. Everything from the starting verse to the verse 12, it's about the cross. And we can see the cross from God's perspective through this passage. I believe this morning we can get a little bit more of a view of God's perspective. And this is where I'm going to take you to verse 6. This is a glimpse from the Father's participation in the cross and what was going on from the Father's perspective and from his view when Jesus was on the cross. We should not be surprised by this because in 2 Corinthians 5, the scriptures by Paul says this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Where was God in Christ? He was on the cross in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The latter part of verse 6 says this, And the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, Father, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The entire weight of sin, the invitation, come to the altar, had one of those lines about, are you under the weight of sin? Let me tell you, no one here should be under the weight of sin. That has been taken care of, because all of the weight of our sin was placed on Jesus. Now, the first part of that verse, and I believe it's verse 6, that... uh, passion of the Christ put up there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at that. All of us. There's that little word all, all through that, right? All of us. It's the equivalent of Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in this room deserved the judgment of God. Every single one of us had a condemnation of our own that was weighing on us. We all have went our own way. All we like. There's some people that are morally good. There's not hardly anything you can find wrong. But when you compare us to God, we at our best are like filthy rags. Right? Our righteousness, whatever it is, compared to someone else, and that's the only way we can determine how good we are, is by, well, I'm better than him. You know, I'm, I'm not as bad as him. And this is how we determine our, our rank and how good we are. But when you stand in front of a completely holy and righteous and infinitely good God, we are woefully lacking to be there. It is not a place that we can stand on our own. And this is the whole point of verse 6. It puts all of us into the same predicament, that we've all went our own way and did our own thing. Iniquity could include just being your independent self, doing whatever you want to do. That, and when you do that, you're not doing what God wants you to do. And this is, what, this is the iniquity. This is the transgression That little word all covers everything, the entire weight of our waywardness. Sheep don't have to try to get lost. They're just stupid enough to get lost. They wander off, and then they become subject to predators. This is why Peter warned people in the body of Christ. The enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour Seeking those outside of the protective confines of the the flock and of the shepherd. If you're going your own way, you're in great danger of getting ambushed by the enemy. And this is what he said. The Lord had laid on him. The whole weight was laid on Jesus, and it was laid on Jesus by who? His Father, Yahweh. He put it all, and the Lord hath... Put on him our iniquity, uh, all of us. This was the Father's will. This was what Jesus knew in his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what the Father's will was. He strained at that point with what he was facing. His humanity was struggling. You know, you know the prayer he prayed. Father, if it's possible... For us to do this some other way, let this cup pass from me. Let me not have to drink from this. But not my will, but what you're with. That's what it came down to, right? It came down to the Father's will. So he pressed through all of that to satisfy the Father's will. But you, you think about this. In Luke 22, when Jesus sat down at the Passover meal, Luke's record includes this. Jesus looked at them at the start of the meal and he said this. With great desire, I've longed to have this meal with you. Now, a few hours later, he's sweating drops of blood. But that meal, he was that was it. This was the night. This was, this was the moment. This is what he came to do. He came to fulfill Isaiah 53. And Matthew records in, in chapter 16... That Jesus told them plainly, um, i got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they will kill me. And I'm going to be raised up the third day. And Peter takes him aside. This is Matthew 16, 22. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And says, God forbid that this will ever happen to you. You remember that? You remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. Boy, that probably hurt his feelings. <laughs> he would have left the church today. He said, get why did why did he why did he respond like that? Why did Jesus respond that forceful with Peter? He explains in the next statement. He says, Peter, you're not thinking what God wants. You're not desiring what God wants. You're desiring what man wants. The King James says, you savor not the things that be of God, but you savor the things that are of man. Peter's emotion got involved into that statement. And we're impressed. It's impossible for us not to be emotional. It's part of our makeup, right? And when we look at some of these things and what happened, it's hard for us to see God's perspective on the cross that this was God's will. This is something He wanted to do, not that He had to do. This was something God wanted to do. Will is not just a a plan. Will also means desire. This was the Father's desire. This was the Son's desire. This was way before the universe was laid and the foundations of the world was laid. They determined way before Adam and Eve was ever created and before they would ever fall, that redemption of fallen mankind would come through the Son becoming the sacrifice for everybody's sins. There's an old Gaither song that some of you might know some of the lyrics, you probably know the chorus. It's no wonder that he stumbled when he walked up Calvary's Road. Anyone remember that song? Hand raise? No hand raise? Where are all where's all the Bill Gaither fans here? Well it's an old song. It was written in nineteen sixty nine. That's old. That's ancient. Some of us graduated from high school in a year like that. But let me me just share the two verses with you. This was written by Gloria Gaither. When you take the sin of Adam and the guilt of Eve, his wife, and to this you add the factor that their sin spoiled all of life, after this came war and bloodshed, sins of hatred, greed, and pride. They were wrapped in one big bundle to my Jesus. They were tied. Verse 2. Should you find the best designer, have him draw the greatest plan. Should you find purest marble, the strongest metal known to man, then hire the finest builders. Let the structure's strength abound. If all earth's sins were placed upon it, it would crumble to the ground. It's no wonder that he stumbled when he walked up Calvary's road. It's no wonder that he cried out as the blood from his side flowed. It's no wonder the sun was blackened as all sin crushed the divine. It's no wonder my life was transformed when I saw those sins were mine. Amen. I like those words. The Lord laid on him your sins. All sin. All the people that have lived, all the people that are living, and all the people that will be born today and in the future, no matter what they do, it's already been paid for. All sin. Now jump to verse 10 with me for a moment. God's view of the cross. Here's another glimpse. And this, I will tell you, is hard for me to process. Those opening words to verse 10, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You're not reading that wrongly. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The actual wording... Yahweh is delighted to crush him. The Father, it sounds strange, doesn't it? We see the cross, we do this. We see certain scenes, crucifixion scenes, we just do this. It repels us. Our emotions well up. We have some elderly cousins of ours in their eighties and nineties. Bless their hearts, they're sweet people, and they're in a different kind of church. But when I'm told my brother and I, as we prayed about to pray for her, I talked about Easter coming up, and she says, "Oh, if I could have just been there, I would have helped him carry his cross." Wouldn't we all? Even though they got someone to help him. None of us could help him do what he was doing. What he was doing was completely on his shoulders. And the father was pleased to, to bruise him, to crush him. You see, we mix in our emotions. But this was not an emotional thing with the father and son. This was a rescue plan this was a plan to save us that was the only reason this is going on this is the only reason for the cross it wasn't God proving anything to anyone it was he was doing this for you for me for the world this was a rescue plan this had nothing to do with the strain upon them and their relationship Strange. You think about what was going on there, and Jesus being so much in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were about to experience within their relationship something foreign to God, and that was death. Death. God is life. Here in this moment, it's death that's made its way into the Godhead. And it pleased God to bruise his own son. How do we understand that? Because you see, God knew the result of what was going on there. And it pleased him that his son was doing that. Are you following me? Jesus is baptized and there's a voice from heaven saying something like this. You remember? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the word for pleased there in the Greek is the same word supplied in the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of Isaiah 53 right there in verse 10. It's almost as God is saying, I'm pleased with him because I know the journey he's on. We think in terms of time. Everything, it pleased God that in Christ would dwell the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Isn't that in the Bible too? Same word. It pleased God that Jesus would be the representation of heaven, the representation of God to endure sin on our behalf. This is why it pleased God to bruise him. And it gives us a little bit of understanding when you look on down. He shall see the travail of of his soul, this is verse 11, and be satisfied. Jesus, shall, the Father, shall see the travail of his own son's soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many <clears throat> because he will bear their iniquities. The Lord will witness the travail of his own son, his own son's soul, and be satisfied. You see, sin is like a debt, Right? Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Sin is like a debt; it's an obligation against the character of God. So we accumulated this huge debt against God that we could not pay. But the satisfaction of that debt was through the person of Jesus. It's always a joyous occasion when you make the last payment on anything. And those three words are there: paid in full. Wonderful words. A shouting territory. You know, you can just, you, when you seal that envelope up and you put that step on there, you just get into a gospel service right there in your living room. Well, why aren't we like that? Because of him paying our debt in full on the cross. There's the hymn that says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The cross satisfied the requirements of God fully and completely. Verse 10 is amazing. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You know the word offering there is the same word used in Leviticus for guilt offering? The soul of Jesus. Wow, we think about the uh, his body hanging on the cross. It's almost as though... The greatest struggle that Jesus had with all of this was in his soul. He wasn't being whipped in the garden of Gethsemane, but his soul was in agony. He even said that. My soul is soaring unto death. I have, I have this turmoil inside of me. And he agonized. He wasn't under any physical duress, not yet. But it's almost as though when he woke up the disciples the last time, and, and he's like, relaxed. Okay, you can wake up now. They're about to come. And it's like, it's like he's finished with the decision, right? They could, beat, they could beat him as much as they could. They could say anything to him, mock him, ridicule him, but in his soul it was done. And when his body expired on the cross it's because he said to the father... Into your hands, I commit my spirit, and that was it. It was finished. Now, we're going to stay in Isaiah 53 over the next two Sundays. In verse 12, it's a great verse. We're not going to get to it today. But I want you to just kind of look, take one little phrase there, and Brandon, if you can come back with a praise team and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You know what that means, right? That means he won. That means he won, and the devil lost. I'm all right with Carmen writing a song about the devil having a party somewhere in hell over Jesus dying, but I want to tell you, It was a sad day, wherever the devil was, in in, the way I wished he was confined to the the confines of Hades. But he's roaming about. But it was a sad day, the day that Jesus made it to the cross because that was the atoning sacrifice of God. That's why when someone stood in front of Jesus and told him, no way is that going to happen to you, he says, that's the devil talking through you." push him off a cliff, kill him when he was a two-year-old baby, try to stone him. The devil did everything to kill him before the cross because he knew after the cross, it's over. It's done. Now, next Sunday is going to be a different view of the cross. But I want you to stand with me because that verse about are you under the weight of sin, there's people here that have a heaviness on you, You don't have to carry that heaviness. You might be feeling guilty about some things that's happened this week. But come to the altar this morning and let God lift that weight off you because it's not meant for you to carry it. He's already carried it. Lord, I ask you this morning to speak to your people who are known by you and called by your name and thankful that they have experienced the taste of salvation that we determined today we're not going to carry unnecessary burdens in our life, not when you carried the greatest burden imaginable. Lord, I do pray for those who are, who are under a weight. Maybe they've had some failures recently. May they come today. May that heaviness be lifted off of them.